You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. I'm going to jump right into this story. It's a story you have probably heard many times. There is... um, You can miss something when you read the Bible too close. And here's what I mean is there's a lot happening. And sometimes we just compartmentalize our stories. And you can miss something. And I have missed something in this story um, from the first time I heard it. But this story actually begins with a tragedy. The man who baptized Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, a man who Jesus no doubt loved and deeply respected, a member of his own family, Jesus' own cousin John is killed by a ruler named Herod. And now this ruler has also heard of the fame of Jesus and has even compared Jesus to John. Now we know that Herod actually was not happy about killing John, but I don't know that Jesus knew that. Right? I don't know that they knew that. All they knew is that Herod killed John, and and Jesus' name is literally on the lips of the man who killed his cousin. So Matthew says, here in chapter 14, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there by boat to a desolate place by himself. So Jesus out of either sadness at the loss of his cousin or to flee the danger of Herod, withdraws to a remote area alone. It was a place near the city of Bethsaida, which means the house of fishers, which is important. And scholars say that this was both a remote wilderness-type area and it was also conveniently outside of Herod's jurisdiction. So Jesus essentially withdrew into the wilderness to collect himself and figure some things out. Maybe to do a little bit of self-care. Have you ever lost something or someone who was really important to you? Or for a season, maybe you felt like the whole world was against you. Have you ever walked into a wilderness place, then looked up and had to ask yourself, what are all these people doing here? What are all these people doing here? So here Jesus is. He's probably mourning the death of John, his cousin. And anyone who says that Jesus doesn't have feelings is wrong. God can be brokenhearted. And Jesus even wept for Lazarus, who he actually raised from the dead. So certainly he wept for John. Don't you think? Jesus was not ice cold. And if this wasn't Jesus himself, you'd almost be tempted to say he's running away, licking his wounds. And any way you want to slice it, he's definitely not out there in the woods because he's excited about how things are going. Nope. Things are falling apart. Things are not working out. Can you imagine 
you just lost someone you love, and it looks like the world is against you, you'd probably be a wreck. You're in a personal wilderness. You feel all alone. And then you look up, and boom, there are 5,000 people. And they all have needs, and they all want you to help them out. What would you do? Have you ever felt this way? I know what I'd do. I'd be like, look, y'all, I love everyone and everything, but y'all need to get out of my face. Because I love you, but I am not okay, and you need to go. You ever walk through a crisis and you still had to change diapers? You still had to pay the bills? You still had to go to work. You ever walk through a crisis and it would be real convenient if the world would just stop and leave you alone, but it won't? Has anyone, you don't have to raise your hand, has anyone ever felt that way? You ever felt beat up, purposeless, and lost, but also surrounded by all these human beings who need stuff from you? They need you at work, need you to get to school, need you to pay the bills, and they need you to eat because they are hungry. I know what I would do. But what I would do and what Jesus would do are different. If you would, if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore and saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He was the one whose cousin had just died, but he had compassion on them. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fishes. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Note, they had more left over than they began with. So, this is the last or one of the last messages in our Summer of Story series. I hope you're enjoying it. I know I have enjoyed it. The stories we tell ourselves about the world are the backbone of who we are as people. And I think when we lose our way, it always begins with a bad story. And I think there is a big problem with the world we live in today. Just one, only one problem, not more than one. No, of course, there's lots of problems, but there's also one big problem, in my opinion, with the world we live in today. We've sort of been taught that our lives can be explained away by a series of facts. 
And for some of us, this view of the world can suck the magic and meaning out of life. I think all this talk about story is important because our stories shape us the way lists of facts or propositions do not. A story is not a list of events. A story is about how to survive in the world. In every single story, there is a problem to be solved. And no matter how ridiculous it is, we are subconsciously drawn to these stories to find out how it ends, just in case it happens to us. We're obsessed with the show, or what 10 years ago we were anyway. We were obsessed with the show about the zombie apocalypse. Not because we believed it could happen, but our subconscious can't allow us to turn away from the screen because subconsciously we got to find out how they survive just in case we have to deal with a similar situation. It's true. That's why Nemo is such a great show, such a great movie. If you have kids, you've seen Nemo. Because Nemo is not a movie about fish. It's a movie about a father who has to overcome his fear and anxiety to go help his son. It's a story about a father who lost his wife and now struggles with the anxiety of the danger in the world, but has to make a conscious decision to push out into the dangerous ocean in order to find the person he, and save the person he loves the most. All, this is what this is all stories are. They're stories about other people that we can secretly use to figure stuff out for ourselves. It's convenient when they're not us, right? Because we can pretend it's not a thing we deal with. It can happen to a clownfish. It can happen in a zombie apocalypse. It can happen in outer space. Right? But this is what stories are. This is every single story. There is no other... Th there, it's Other than that, it's just a list of events. Right? And that's the difference in history and a story. As history is a list of events, a story teaches us how to live in the world. But there are two kinds of stories, in my opinion. One story is about how to survive. It doesn't always have to be life and death. It might be how to survive high school. It might be how to survive a new job. Right? But it's how to survive. We need this survival information. But there is a greater kind of story. Right? There is a story about why survival matters in the first place. Why is staying alive a good idea anyway? Sometimes this story might even present something that's so beautiful or worthy that we would even be willing to risk our survival or lay our lives down for something that worthy. That's the second type of story. These are stories about joy, beauty, and meaning. These are the greatest stories ever told. I'm convinced that this is the real kind of story Jesus offers us. Jesus didn't just come into this world and suffer so that our lives could be permanently extended. Jesus didn't come in the world just to extend your life. Certainly, he came to show us how to live a beautiful, meaningful, and life that is full of joy. Otherwise, what good is eternal life 
Anyway, I have a friend who jokes and says that a version of hell would be if he had to be himself for eternity. That's funny, but it's kind of not funny. But today I want to talk a little bit about this second kind of story. I specifically want to talk about meaning. But I also want to go on the record here today and say that I'm probably in way over my head today. If you know me, you know I love to swing for the fences. Today I'm swinging and will probably miss a few. So if you don't understand everything I'm trying to say, it's probably not you. It's probably me. But that's okay. And with that said, today I'm going to take a crack at fixing what some have maybe called a worldwide meaning crisis. Just kidding. I'm not going to fix it. But I'm pretty sure in the end here, I can help articulate an invitation that Jesus has for us in this season. So if that's cool, let's get swinging, all right? Let's see how many times I have to strike out before I hit one. All right, let's read a few scriptures together. I'm going to put John 6 up on the screen. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Matthew 16, 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. John 10.10. Read this one with me. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And lastly, I have this quote. Life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. It's by uh, Viktor Frankl, Austrian author, psychologist, and Holocaust survivor. You guys doing all right? The reason I read my messages is because when I go off the page, I say things I regret. I know that's entertaining for you, but I have to live with it. So I'll try and keep it interesting without uh, saying something stupid here. Um, but first, I want to talk to you about an invention. I want to talk to you about an invention. Let me tell you a story about one of the world's greatest inventions that I bet you probably don't even think about. Well, there is a human invention that has meant more to the world than the printing press, the automobile, and the Internet combined. Without this invention, there would be no such thing as a large human civilization, at least not in most of the West. Without this invention, there may have risen some human populations in certain parts of the East, but it's doubtful there would have been any large group of Egyptians, no Romans, no Germanics, no Franks, no Spanish, no Portuguese, no Philistines, no Hebrews, no Vikings, no Anglos, no Celts, and definitely no such thing as the United States of America. This world, as we know it, would not exist. People might still be living the way they did in the Stone Age. In small groups or tribes with only primitive prehistoric technologies where four out of five children die before 12, over 50% of women died in childbirth, and the average man lived to be about 38 years old. A 
Large groups and the spread of information could not survive without this. Thus, all technology, in a way, stands on the back of this invention. This invention is known as the cornerstone of civilization. You probably figured out what it is. Anybody want to take a shot? Somebody. The wheel is good, but it's not the wheel. A boat, not a boat. But it starts with a B. It's bread. Bread and wine fueled the Roman Empire. Armies can't march without food. They can't carry unrefrigerated meat for very long. You can't make a salad or a smoothie on a hundred-mile march. But bread and wine will keep for a little while and are easy to carry or cook up. And grains can keep for a very, very, very long time. Remember what Joseph did for Pharaoh that saved Egypt and the Hebrew people. Remember that story? Some grains can be stored for 8 to 12 years. Bread and wine, by the way, would have even been a very common Greek breakfast in Jesus' day. In the East, they had rice, and you could support very large civilizations on rice, but rice is very hard to farm. And wheat is much, much easier. Right? And so... I would say that there'd be no civilization, but it's not true. There may be some large civilizations, but the world as we know it would not exist. So it makes sense why Romans and Greeks have such grand myths about grains and bread and the seasons. Many, many cultures have an almost religious relationship to grain and bread. The farmer plants the grain in the earth like a form of death, and in time it gives rise to wheat That death causes the fruit of the earth to rise, and we make bread from it, and we live. Humanity thrives because of this death and resurrection. We take it into ourselves, and we have life. It dies, so we might live, and thus, and so on. And so bread is almost worshipped throughout times in history. And it makes sense. The invention of bread is the only reason large amounts of people in much of the world could have ever survived. Survived. It's why Marie Antoinette, the Queen of France, was beheaded for saying, let them eat cake. Because when the people don't have bread, things get really, really weird. When the people don't have bread, things get really, really weird. When the people don't have bread, they will burn the world down. They will riot and kill. When there is no bread, the people perish individually and collectively. Cities fall, kingdoms crumble, and chaos reigns when there is no sustenance for the people. People need bread. Think about this in the light of how often Jesus talks about bread. What is Jesus saying when he says stuff like, this is my body broken for you, then points at a loaf of bread. Or I'm the bread come down from heaven. Or I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. What is he talking about? See, we've got all sorts of other things to eat now. You can opt out of bread now. But that's not a thing you could have done 2,000 years ago. Not for very long. Not for very long. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Here's a poor attempt at a joke. Have you ever wondered why people who buy lottery tickets aren't more afraid of lightning? 
It's not really my material. I saw that on TikTok, but it passed so fast I couldn't remember the guy's name. I hate to steal material. But more importantly, have you ever wondered why people who play the lottery aren't more afraid of winning the lottery? Seriously, there are fascinating YouTubes about this. We all know that people who win the lottery almost always ruin their lives. They go bankrupt, they get divorced, commit suicide, they get murdered, they commit murder. Not all of them, but enough that it's super concerning. We all know that, right? We do. Here's the kicker, though. Most of us know that winning the lottery ruins everyone's life. But still, none of us would turn it down. None of us. Would you? I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. And why? Are we smarter? More disciplined? Nope. It's just too hard to resist. Because we're all programmed to believe that most of our problems are material. We're all programmed to believe, myself included, that most of our problems are material. Certainly some of them are. But what if we imagine for a moment that the most important problems in our life are not material? What if I said that societies implode when they don't have bread, but also humans implode when they don't have heavenly bread? When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what was the first temptation? To make bread. To make bread. And how much of your life is spent over the anxiety of making bread? A lot. A lot. Here's what's really interesting. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness... And uh, the devil tempted him to turn stones into bread. What did he do? He actually quoted Deuteronomy 8. I'm going to read this real quick. If I could get all the way back to Deuteronomy. That's a long... When's the last time you guys read good old Deuteronomy? So Jesus literally quotes Deuteronomy 8. I'm going to start at verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that's what Jesus said. He was hungry. He was tempted to turn rocks into stone. He said, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here's something interesting to notice. 
Words and bread pop up consistently in Scripture. Word pops up almost as often as bread does. Let me read you one of my favorite verses about words or word, singular or plural, however you want to look at it. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is one of the most beautiful things ever written. This might be my favorite thing ever written that I've ever read in the history of my life. Notice how both words and bread have something in common. Both have a way of becoming flesh. Both have a way of becoming flesh. You eat bread and it gives you strength. It becomes part of your body so that you can function and live. But the words get into you. And as you act on the stories that you tell yourself, or the ones you listen to, the ones you engage with, you become whatever that invisible word is. You become. So what invisible words are trying to become flesh through you? Think about this for a second. These are two stories of Jesus in the desert. Jesus wouldn't turn rocks into bread to save his own life. But when his friends were hungry in the desert, he fed 5,000 people. So the thing that he was tempted to do, that he refused to do, he turns around and he did it in this second situation. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is in the wilderness twice. And the first time he refuses to make bread. And the second time he makes enough bread to feed 5,000 people. Anytime you're reading anything ever, watching a movie, anytime there's a situation, a story or literature or whatever, whenever something happens twice and one time is different from the other, there's a, there's a message there, right? If Jesus is in the wilderness two times and he doesn't make bread one time and then the second time he does make bread... There's got to be a reason for it. What Jesus refused to do for himself, he did in abundance for others. And then they had more left over than they began with. Could it be that heavenly bread is something that finds you while you engage in a project that's larger than the project of your own needs? What if heavenly bread is not the bread of survival, but the bread that makes survival a thing worth doing? What if heavenly bread is the bread of joy, meaning, beauty, and hope? What if heavenly bread 
is that which sustains you when the world around you is falling apart. And hear me out. I'm actually all for self-care. If you don't take care of yourself, you will make yourself miserable. But self-care will never make you happy. Because you can make yourself miserable. But you cannot make yourself happy. And self-care is all about not making yourself miserable. If you eat right and exercise and do all the right stuff, it, it, it keeps you from being a certain level of miserable. But you cannot make yourself happy. Viktor Frankl, who I quoted earlier, says this. Happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself. Or as a byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. I think this is the fallacy of our age. That we can make ourselves happy. But there is no such thing as the pursuit of happiness. Happiness and joy find us as we give ourselves to a higher purpose. And scripture tells us there is no purpose higher than what? Than love. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. We have all this technology. We have all these facts. But in the, in the swirl of it all, and remember, the technology, I like it. I use it all the time, by the way. Remember, the technology benefits certain people when it makes you feel like something is missing. And it benefits certain people if the technology can make you feel like it can help you make yourself happy. But you can't. Henry Nouwen talks about the undercurrent of despair that exists below the high success culture. So what then is the invitation Jesus has for us in the day of the meaning crisis? Here is the invitation I believe Jesus has for us today. Let love reach its destination. Let love reach its destination. How often are we so distracted by trying to make ourselves happy, trying to craft meaning for ourselves, that we forget to love the people that we love. 
You know, people used to say about John Lennon that he loved humanity, he just hated people. Because he was an activist and also horrible to his family. (laughs) Don't love humanity and hate the people in your life. Word becomes flesh when you let love reach its destination. The abstract becomes concrete. The invisible becomes visible. Spirit becomes flesh in our actions. And these actions are likely to attract joy. And there's a little side note here. Some people are... um, Some people are in despair because they've, they've been in bad relationships. And there's a difference in letting love reach its destination for acceptance and letting love reach its destination because it's the highest. You know what I mean? And sometimes you have to take care of yourself in order to be unmiserable enough to be able to love the people in your world. So, I'm not telling you to cancel all your self-care plans. But here are some practices I think you can consider. Is it possible to have some musicians come up? John. Schroeder's enough. The others can come too, but I'm satisfied. But stand up for me. Let's have a moment with the, with the Lord. So I probably missed a few pitches today, but if you can walk away with this, maybe we're all good. Here are some practices to consider. Do something every day to momentarily detach from the things that activate your survival story. Disconnect from work, media, responsibilities, your phone. Physically disconnect from the things, from these things, and give space for some different kinds of thoughts. I know this is super basic, but I forget to do this almost every single day. Then experience something beautiful and attribute it to God I saw a beautiful comic book on eBay and I was outbid by five dollars it was beautiful it's an unbelievable condition it was enough just to look at it so I attribute that to God As my buddy Ted said a few weeks ago, all beauty leads back to God because beauty is anything that calls you beyond yourself. That's why my wife is at the beach sitting in front of the ocean looking out. You feel that thing drawing you. What's on the other side? I don't know, and that's what's beautiful. But experience some beauty. It can be beauty in Scripture. It can be beauty in your family, in nature. Be beauty on TV. It can be a film, a book, anything. You know it. You know beauty when you see it. Experience some beauty and attribute it to God. 
think about or observe something beautiful and thank God for it and have a moment with him in that thought. Assume that this beauty is God calling you from the beyond and sharing his heart with you. And finally, ask God this question. How can I let love reach its destination? We all have people we love. Yet too often we allow the busyness of life to distract us from expressing that in words or deeds. Think about someone you haven't seen in a while. Write them a letter. Buy someone an expensive comic book at a high grade. Bring it to church next Sunday. He'll be sitting right up here. No, please don't do that. You don't know what I like. Brandon probably does. And the thing is, these, these things are easy to do. You know... There's a difference in kindness, generosity, and sacrifice. Kindness costs you almost nothing. Generosity is, is somewhat costly, and sacrifice always costs you something. But I think as we give ourselves to these things, you'll realize, at least if you're not miserable because you didn't take care of yourself, you'll realize that these are the greatest reasons to be alive. And when Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, I always assumed it was because my neighbor. But maybe he tells me to love my neighbor because I need to. Maybe it's not for my neighbor anyway. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you for all these people. Thank you for these wonderful, wonderful people here in church today. I love these people. This is my beauty. As you guys today. Especially Brandon, because that shirt is on point. And I've known Brandon since I was a teenager, and I love that guy so much. Lord, bless Brandon. Bless his family. Such a beautiful family. That's my beauty this week. I'm thanking God for the Willits this week. Thank you. But Lord Jesus, we ask you to continue to teach us. Teach us. I said, all you who are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. And he says, learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord Jesus, we accept the easy burden. We accept the light burden, the easy burden of learning from you and taking on that which is important to you. And we give ourselves to you and we ask you to show us 
Keep us from giving ourselves to the things that are going to destroy us. And teach us how to give ourselves to the things that you have called us to love the most. Teach us how to be lovers of you and lovers of one another. trying to figure out how to squeeze the word sustainable in here. Sustainable love. I don't know what that means. But I think it means that if the joy that finds us along the way is from you, then that will keep us going when things get really, really hard. Thank you so much, Jesus love you. Do we have ministry teams this week? A bunch of ministry teams come up. If you want prayer for anything, you can come up at any time and these lovely people here would love to pray with you. Other than that, Shelly, do we have anything else? No? All right. Other than that, you are dismissed. Love you guys. Thank you. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.